How is the sound in the back? Can you hear? All right. I think you may be able to guess what my theme is for the evening. Did you know that listening to a Dharma talk is a practice in and of itself? It's true. So offering the Dharma is a practice and hearing the Dharma is a practice. So just open and compose your mind and uh, be present. Don't worry too much about trying to figure it out or writing it all down because really the parts that will resonate the most uh, will land without uh, the assistance of your attempt to engage your short-term memory. So just trust that. I want to start with a story. I have a friend who is a local person And uh, this woman is a part of the greater IMS Sangha, you might say. She was on staff at one time here, uh, but that was quite a while ago. And um, then she became a, a Zen monk. And she lives in town, very simply. And she does a lot of things for a lot of people around town hospice kinds of things and supporting older people. So for instance, one night we had a power outage and it lasted uh, a number of hours and then some people uh, who were vulnerable kind of got evacuated to a local place where they had a generator and there could be power and warmth and light and things like that. And she would go and stay with them stay with the older people and the people who were ill and help them. And she herself, as she's gotten a bit older, has developed certain health problems. And the health problem that probably is most difficult is that her heart has uh, very irregular fast beating sometimes, arrhythmia. So the heart will really start racing and it will beat uh, not in a coordinated way and kind of out of rhythm and um, it's really scary. And there are relatively few things that you can do for this. So if your heart is too slow, for instance, you can get a pacemaker and that will help stimulate it electronically and move things along into a normal cycle. But if your heart is going way too fast and it's irregular and kind of doing its own thing, it's basically what can be done for you is uh, medication or in some cases uh, a procedure that people don't exactly line up for, which is the the docs actually destroy a part of the heart um, that's involved with some of the most significant irregularities. So you would say, okay, most people would go for the medication option if possible. So she has this, and 
this has required numerous trips to the emergency room when this starts happening, right? Because obviously you shouldn't be trying to drive yourself to uh, Gardner or to Worcester, one of the big hospitals that are equipped to deal with this. So she's been in the ambulance many times. And she's gotten to know a number of the e local EMTs here in Barrie. So the circumstance came that she was hospitalized again. She was hospitalized and they were the doctors were looking to see what her body was doing with a, n a new set of medications that were supposed to attempt to regulate the heart rate. So they kept her in there several days, you know, and she's all hooked up to these monitors and things that are observing everything and it's feeding right into the nurse's station and the cardiac unit. And she has one of these major episodes and she can she can feel it when it's starting and she says she likes to you know sit up and then you know try to do a relaxing breath to work with it but you know it started to show up the readings at the nurses station in came the nurses very rapidly and then in came a cardiologist uh, resident who she knew and they wanted her, they lowered the bed, they wanted her to lie flat, and they got out, they're getting the paddles ready. So you know what that means when they have the paddles out. That means they're thinking, okay, might, this person might either have a stoppage of the heart or it's so irregular that you're going to want to give them a shock just to try to get it to jump back on track in some sort of way. So she's there, her heart is doing all this stuff. She's just been moved into this position that makes it more difficult for her to breathe. And she looks at the people coming in and they're all worried and they're all concerned. They move the little cart into position. And she says to them, you know, I really appreciate everything that you've done for me. And you know, whatever happens here, I, I want to let you know that I feel really grateful for uh, your care and support. And I appreciate whatever you can do, but I want you to know that if something happens, I don't want you to feel bad. Because I know some people who are EMTs, and sometimes when they try to help people and they pass away you know I've seen some of them get on the wrong side of the bottle and I wouldn't want that to happen to you now when she told me this this story you know she I was just you know having a general conversation with her about you know how's your health you know venerable what's what's been going on and so she tells me the story of you know <laughs> the the this night in the hospital and you know this went on and on and on and they didn't actually use the paddles but it was kind of like this multi-hour event and she told me this story kind of very matter-of-factly and I was like wow 
you've been doing some practice. <laughs> I mean, can you imagine being at uh, the point of what might be your death and having the presence of mind to reassure the people who were there to help you that it would be okay if you went and it wouldn't be their fault and so not to worry. Why do I think not too many of us go out like that? (laughs) But it shows you the power of equanimity when it's very deeply developed. So then the question is, how do you get a mind that's like that? Sad to say, it cannot be purchased through Amazon. Now, would you think it might have something to do with the fact that there has been decades-long practices like doing the practices of the five remembrances. Have you heard of the five remembrances? So this is a practice given directly by the Buddha. And these are traditionally recited in the morning. And, you know, it's understood that reflecting on these particular things might have an influence on the choices one might make every day. So the first one, I am of the nature to age. I have not gone beyond aging. The second, I am of the nature to sicken. I have not gone beyond sickness. Third, I am of the nature to die. I have not gone beyond death. Four, all that is mine, beloved and pleasing, will become otherwise, will become separated from me. Five, I am the owner of my actions, heir to my action, born of my action, related to my action, abide supported by my action, whatever action I shall do for good or for ill, of that I shall be the heir. Now, do you think that having a multi-decade practice of doing this reflection in the morning every day might have a particular effect upon the mind? One might imagine that it would gradually open the heart and mind to the reality of impermanence, personal impermanence, which is one of those topics that generally we don't like to think about because it's too scary, it's too unpleasant to entertain. So Buddhism has a number of these Aikido moves, you might say, where in the interest of liberating the mind, in the interest of freeing the mind, you're actually encouraged to turn the mind towards some rather bracing aspects of reality. And you can see if this practice is done wisely within the full context of the teachings, it can have a very salutary effect 
on putting things in their proper perspective. So that when you're in the intensive care unit and your heart is going wonky, you're not really surprised. You've been preparing for these kinds of eventualities every day for years. So, you know, the question came up in a number of the small interview groups, well, how do you get equanimity? And the answer to that is equanimity is what you might call an emergent property, an emergent property from practice that contains both wisdom and clear insight into the truth of impermanence. So what what is working against us in learning to see the truth of impermanence directly for ourselves over and over again in a way that's skillful, in a way that's wise and balanced? Well, the answer to that is a number of things. There's the, the basic five hindrances that you may have discovered at this point in your retreat. You know, sense desire or wanting, aversion, not wanting, uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt. Come in and uh, distract the mind and then it wanders and then it gets completely lost, loses the thread of what it's doing during meditation. You know, we're fighting a kind of upstream battle when we're learning how to do insight meditation practice. We have a natural awareness. We have a natural capacity for awareness. But the mind gets lost so easily, so often, you may have noticed that for yourself. There was something in the New York Times last week that just struck me as really funny. So, The title of this is The Eight-Second Attention Span. I don't know if anybody else saw this. So it goes, In the information blur of last year, you may have overlooked news of our incredibly shrinking attention span. A survey of Canadian media consumption by Microsoft concluded the average attention span had fallen to eight seconds, down from 12 in the year 2000. We now have a shorter attention span than goldfish, the study found. (laughs) So he goes on, he says, attention span was defined as the amount of concentrated time on a task without becoming distracted. And then he says, I tried to read the entire 54-page report, but well, you know. And it's kind of like that, isn't it? It's like you you turn awareness to the breath and it's like, in, uh, (laughs) uh. I mean, eight seconds on a good day, right? But But it can be trained. It can be trained. And as far as, uh, 
cultivating this this equanimity, this balanced, accepting openness, this centered, relaxed presence, this capacity to be steady and to be uh, free from uh, the suffering kind of reactivity, there has to be mindfulness. There has to be mindfulness, which is why insight meditation practice starts with instructions that are designed to help you identify what mindfulness is and to begin to turn mindful awareness towards certain types of experience within practice, usually starting with the body. Usually starting with the body, the first foundation of mindfulness. So you may have noticed, (coughs) excuse me, an interesting feature of the meditation instructions. I talked about this in in one of my groups today when people were talking about various experiences that they were having that were uh, difficult or painful or stressful kinds of experiences. And I basically gave some coaching on how you might turn the mind towards those experiences and begin to investigate them using mindfulness, begin to investigate exactly what was happening in the present moment, what it was, what was happening and how it was happening, how it was opening, how it was unfolding moment by moment. And this is always an interesting moment when people come in and basically are telling you something they're experiencing that they're experiencing as distressing or difficult. And the teacher's response is to say, oh, how was that? What was that like? Tell me about that. How did you experience that? What did you notice about that? Now, in in our daily life, if somebody expressed difficulty or distress to you, you wouldn't necessarily respond in that kind of way, right? The response, if you're empathetic, for instance, might be, oh, you you poor thing. That's so terrible that you have to experience that. I feel so bad for you. Let me make you a cup of tea. And now you know the difference between a Dharma teacher and a normal person. (laughs) So it's a a different kind of prompting that you're given. You are being given support. You're being given a really deep kind of support and a, a very important kind of support, but it's probably not the kind of support that you're used to getting when you're expressing difficulty. Because basically you're being coached to if, if you can do this in a balanced way, if, if the resources are available at the time, your internal resources are available at the time, you're being coached to turn to it and see what it is. Now, these Vipassana meditation instructions that are given are basically a coaching in how to relate equanimously to your experience. 
which is to seek to be present with it and open to it in a balanced way. Which sort of sounds like connected, accepting, balanced openness, relaxed, centered presence, clear, non-resistant allowing that I just said was the definition of equanimity. So you're being given an equanimity instruction by being encouraged to turn towards it and investigate it. So these instructions over time incline the mind to be able to relate to and be present to any kind of experience that you have by using mindfulness in the same kind of way, meeting things in the same kind of way, regardless of whether they're pleasant or unpleasant or neutral in terms of how they land. So we're saying relate to everything the same way, unless for some reason that's not possible or that's not skillful. So you're, you're being coached in equanimity right at that point. So here's the un- Dharma understanding. If we struggle against what's painful or unpleasant, something arises, it's painful and unpleasant, we suffer from aversion to what we're experiencing. That's on top of the painful and unpleasant, right? There's the arising of the aversion, the not liking, the wanting to get rid of it. If we struggle to hold on to, grasp at, select for, keep what's pleasant, we suffer from the clinging, the greed, the rope burn. But if we're free from aversion, the struggle of aversion, i.e. the energy is going into the knowing, the mindful knowing of things moment by moment, it it doesn't blossom into aversion in the face of unpleasantness because the energies of the mind are going into investigation, into connection with things. If we're free from the struggle of aversion, we don't suffer even though we may be experiencing something unpleasant or painful, then the experience is known for what it is and how it is in real time. It passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. Then this is the experience of equanimity. And likewise, if we're free from the struggle to hold on to what we like, meaning when the mind experiences pleasantness, it doesn't immediately and automatically go into an ownership relationship and try to grasp it and keep it and control it. If we're free from that struggle to hold on to what we like, we're able to connect with and allow the pleasant without becoming unhappy when things change. Thus the experience is known for what it is, It passes through our awareness without destroying our peace of mind. This is equanimity. So when we're we're balanced and centered and present, we experience the mind state of equanimity. 
And this is the state in which we actually have the maximum capacity to act and choose in wise and skillful ways that promote our own well-being and that of others. There's two states that are kind of faux versions of equanimity, and I want to talk about those for a while because it's important to have some discernment about this point. And spiritual practice can sometimes be used in a way that is disconnected. You know, you ever hear somebody say, oh, it's all impermanent anyway, you know, it's all impermanent. In some sort of situation where a a wider perspective or a wiser perspective would be, yes, it's true, it's all impermanent, but some things are more skillful than others, so you better get on it, boy, and get going about that thing that you're doing, even though it's impermanent. So these faux states, one example of it is suppression, which is where you try to deal with an arising state or experience by stuffing it down or denying it or tightening around it. This is actually a form of fear. You know, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react, I'm not going to react. So this can come up in, in meditation practice, right? Something arises, it's unpleasant or difficult or it's not welcome. And then the system gets into, like, I'm not going to notice that one. Let me (laughs) notice something else. What could I turn to? I'm not going to, you know, it's like right there in your face. It's like, here, here, anger, anger, anger. Oh, how can I get some equanimity, you know, and kind of like spackle it over (laughs) so I don't have to (laughs) experience the state that's actually present? Well, you know, the general practice rule is you want to identify and open to what's right there, what's right in the foreground. That's how generally you you know what to attend to. If you have a foreground experience, generally that's your meditation object. If mindfulness can be sustained there. So suppression is, is not equanimity. And in fact, it's important, important, crucial in practice to be train the mind to be willing to recognize and acknowledge what its actual experience is without preference notice that without preference peace now do you think that has something to do with equanimity given that we described it as non-resistant allowing and connected, accepting openness. If it's there, it's there. Non-suppression. And then the other uh, faux version of equanimity is apathy and indifference, where we don't really connect with what's going on, but we kind of withdraw from reality, you know? Have, Have you ever been in a relational kind of situation where you've had an exchange or maybe a series of exchanges with somebody that you you know fairly well and you can just tell they're really mad or hurt or something and you you say something like are you okay are you mad and that person goes oh no i'm fine 
I'm fine, no problem, no worries. You can see this, you know, the steam, the steam coming out of their ears. Hmm. It doesn't matter. I'm fine. <laughs> Maybe you've done this yourself. I'm fine. I've done it a few times. I'm fine. No problem. So equanimity is not uh, indifferent either. Sometimes you can get the idea that equanimity is devoid of warmth, devoid of metta. It's just like this cool kind of thing. But the truth is, even though equanimity has a kind of uh, coolness in its balance, in other words, it's not inflamed, it's not an inflammatory kind of state, it's not inflamed in relationship to what it's experiencing, it always arises in association with a number of other wholesome factors, mindfulness being one of them. But wisdom is often, always, present as well. And there can be other things like metta as well. So if you were going to look for a lay example of what equanimity is like, you might think of a parent with a young child in, say, a to- say a toddler, just for saying, say a toddler. We all have our inner toddler, so I'm sure we can remember what the state is like. But they can be very challenging, right? Say when it's time to go to bed or when they're hungry or tired or they've been in the car too long or they just kind of get kind of crazy, right? And sometimes that really gets you and you get reactive in response, but sometimes when the mind is balanced, when it's steady, when it's stable, when it's open, there's a wisdom there and you understand she's tired. She should have had her nap and, you know, she didn't have her nap and, you know, she's just tired, she's been up too long or she's been at daycare too long, you know, she just needs, and and the mind understands what's going on, so it doesn't in a certain kind of way, take it personally. Now, it may not be perfect equanimity. (laughs) You may still have reactions arise in the mind, but the mind is able to hold even the reactions in a larger field of some kind of balance. I can can remember my mother... uh, uh, a couple years ago had this experience where she fell and she broke a couple vertebrae, fractured a couple vertebrae in her back. And she was really in a lot of pain, but we decided to keep her at home because we felt we could take better care of her there while we were researching whether anything could be done for her. So I went over to help my sister take care of my mother, and they put her on these very heavy-duty opiates. I mean, Oxycontin, and then there was fentanyl, and it was like all of these very heavy-duty. 
opioids, and they took off the edge of it, but she was still in a lot of pain. But they did have the effect of, me, of kind of putting her out of her head a little bit. So she would, she would ring this little, she would have this bell that she would ring, you know, like you would use to summon the servants that she would ring when she needed something. And she was impatient and she didn't, you know, really know what, how she was reacting or responding to things. And she was very impatient. So she would ring this little bell and she would like expect you to be there like within, you know, two or three seconds to help her change position or, you know, help her get up to, to go to the bathroom or something like this. And I can, I can remember at one point, you know, responding to this little bell for about the, you know, the 20th time uh, that morning and helping her, you know, move towards the bathroom. And we got right outside the, the bathroom and she looked down and she said, Winnie? Yeah, Ma. Do you see those? <laughs> and I said, what? And she said, those ants. And she starts, you know, trying to stamp on these. She says, get them. <laughs> get them. And I looked down and I said, there's nothing down there, Ma. She says, she gives, <laughs> gives me this look of like complete disgust. She said, you can't see those. Look at them. <laughs> look at them. So she's hallucinating, right? So I look down. It's, it's just an oak floor. It's got a, you know, a little crack that's a little bit different color. She's like convinced the ants are there. And I, I could feel in myself like the, the arising of this uh, hybrid state that was uh, part, part fatigue, <laughs> part uh, compassion, part annoyance, and part amusement at the imaginary ants. But the mind had, had reaction in it. It had some reaction in it. But there was enough equanimity that it could kind of hold its experience. right? It wasn't trying to hold dead still in the mid- middle like some kind of pendulum you know, that was hanging plumb and had no movement in it at all. Because that's not how we establish equanimity, right? We don't establish equanimity by saying, I'm just going to be equanimous. I'm not going to have a reaction. I'm not going to react. 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 Because it doesn't work like that. Because we don't have that kind of control. So equanimity is more... uh, set back from that and is able to allow what reaction is present there. But we'll see it. We'll see the reaction. And in a certain kind of way, we'll be balanced in relationship to the reaction. Right? It will recognize reaction when it's happening. And that's one of the, the uh, levels or manifestations of equanimity as it moves towards deeper and deeper levels. That would be an experience where there are follow-on echoes of reaction in response to experience, but the mind doesn't uh, 
react to its own reactivity, right? It's, the mind still has its favorites about what's happening, but it doesn't resist that, um, that insight that it does favor some things over others. So then I, I could have no, noted some things there in that moment, I suppose, but I was still trying to talk her out of the ants and get, <laughs> get her in the bathroom. <clears throat> so there's another version of equanimity, which is where the, in relationship to what it's experienced, there's a willingness and ability to attend equally to whatever arises. So there's no uh, attentional favoritism, attentional, A-T-T-E-N-T-I-O-N-A-L, favoritism. So the mind is equally willing to be present with, attend to whatever is happening, whether it's pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. It's just very even in being able to and willing to recognize the foreground experience in meditation practice without picking and choosing in that kind of way. This is a stronger form of equanimity. So things come and go. They may be pleasant. They may may be unpleasant. They may be neutral, but the mind isn't picking and choosing. It's okay with whatever it is it doesn't object to things. The last level I just talked about might object, but that's held in equanimity too. And then there's another version, which is a strong experience of the state of equanimity itself. This is when the predominant experience is actually an experience of the state of equanimity. So there's always strong mindfulness here and other wholesome factors are also strong in addition to the equanimity. And this is a state of mind that's so open that nothing sticks. So things move through awareness without there being friction. It's just the mind sees, notices, whatever is present, it's experienced, it has its life, and as all impermanent things do, it passes away and then it's replaced by something else that has its life and it passes away. So the mind is really connecting with the the stream of impermanent experience. So it's right there receiving that band of impermanent experience. And when it gets to be like this, and this opens in the course of uh, meditative development, Maybe not on a five-day course. But this is where the horizon goes. When the mind is like this, it moves into what's called a state of high equanimity, which is a state from which classical awakening experiences happen. Some people have the idea, you know, uh, these classical awakening experiences come from things getting more and more pleasant and more and more pleasant and more and more this and more and more that. They actually come from the deepening of equanimity, which, as I said earlier, is 
uh, an emergent state or an end state of the sequential opening of the seven factors of awakening, starting with mindfulness. So mindfulness is really the most important and um, initial thing that needs to be cultivated to kind of get you on the uh, spiral path of development of the wholesome qualities of mind and these other awakening factors of mind. So it's in the seeing of impermanence, the truth of impermanence, in momentary experience over and over and over and over and over and over again that the mind actually gets how conditioned reality actually exists and lets go. Let's go of its resistance to things. And that's the arising of wisdom through seeing how things really are. And that's what liberates the mind, is coming to an experiential, very deep experiential understanding of how things actually are and how things actually work. It's in the direct seeing. Now, the things that I talked about earlier, like the, the five reflections, are wisdom reflections that can help seed the mind with the truth of impermanence that it can more clearly and experientially know in the course of insight meditation practice. So it's interesting how various um, spiritual systems regard the end state, but it seems like most of them regard the end state as having something to do with equanimity and peace, unshakable peace, the peace that passes understanding. You heard that one? It's not found in what is immediately experienced, but it's somehow present in regard to everything. There's a prayer from the breviary of St. Teresa of Avila that uses God language to talk about uh, how this deep seeing of impermanence, deep understanding of impermanence and acceptance of it connects with the mind coming to a state of peace. So this is called uh, Nadate Turbe. And the English translation is, let nothing disturb you, nothing frighten you. All things are passing. God never changes. Patience obtains all things. Whoever has God within lacks nothing. God is everything. Or maybe there's the resonance in the serenity prayer from the 12-step programs where they're talking about, may I accept the things I cannot change. May I have the courage to change the things I can and have the wisdom to know the difference. So wisdom reflection, right? There's a seeking there for an understanding about 
where do I have control? Where do I have leverage? Let me see that clearly. Let me understand what can be done and should be done. And the rest of it, let me let go of any struggle in relationship to it. And that's very much the, a description of the practice of discernment that's part of Vipassana practice. Because you see, the mind again and again tries to exercise control with what's immediately arising and then has very, shall we say, very checkered results. You may have noticed this. And then it tries to figure out if it did something wrong that it couldn't control it and maybe it try again in a different kind of way. And it tries and it tries and it tries and it tries. And at a certain point, it starts to get tired of what doesn't seem to work. And then it turns its attention more to the knowing of what is present. Just paying attention to it as it presents itself. It almost fatigues itself... <laughs> fatigues itself from the effort to exercise a control which is not available. And then it starts to smarten up and just hear the instructions again in a different kind of way and maybe really be able to hear what, what's being said. No, here's notice the, allow the, attend to, connect with, receive the, none of which has language of struggle in it. So this is part of the learning. Here's another uh, clarification too. And I, I love this uh, by Shinzen Young. So this is his, his summary, his rather profound summary of the difference between equanimity and indifference. So remember I said indifference is a near enemy. He says, equanimity involves non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Non-interference with the natural flow of subjective sensation. Apathy implies indifference to the controllable outcome of objective events. In other words, something could be done to make something one way or another, but there's an indifference and so not no action. Thus, although seemingly similar, equanimity and apathy are actually opposites. Equanimity frees up internal energy for responding to external situations. By definition, equanimity involves radical permission to feel, meaning experience things as they are, and as such is the opposite of suppression. As far as external expression of feeling is concerned, internal equanimity gives one the freedom to externally express or not, depending on what is appropriate to the situation. 
that's a really brilliant clarification. Because sometimes we think, well, you know, you get all equanimous and then you become what? A, you know, a jelly roll or something. <laughs> you know, just like things just happen to you and you have no capacity for agency or action or any of that. Or maybe you shouldn't be making choices and exercising your your intention or moving in a certain direction or trying to make things happen in your daily life. But that's not what it means at all. So if you were going to say, who, who would be the more skilled actor? Someone who is out of touch or out of connection with their immediate experience or not in balance, not in a balanced relationship to their immediate experience? or someone who is completely <coughs> connected to their inner experience and to the larger context in which that experience is happening and is not being pushed or riven by strong states of reactivity. Who do you think would be the more skilled actor? There's a right answer there. <laughs> so. I'll just tie out this uh, a last piece here, which is around the the piece of social action. We're always acting in the world. We're always acting on our intentions. Conscious attention, uh, intentions or unconscious intentions. Skillful intentions are unskillful intentions. We're always acting in the world. We can have very skillful intentions, for instance, to want to be of benefit to beings, to want to change things in the world that need to be changed, where wisdom tells us that something that's happening is unskillful and needs to be different. We can know that and can be very unskillful in our pursuit of that. Meaning not be tuned in enough to actually be effective. Or we can act out of a state of distress and reactivity which is so strong that the actions that we take are counterproductive and don't advance what we clearly see needs to be different. Doesn't move along the change that needs to happen. Now, sometimes when people talk about people working for social change or you know, whether it's work against uh, racism or work against uh, the effects of uh, climate change or many of the other uh, places of suffering in our culture, they can say, well, you know, you shouldn't, you shouldn't act out of anger. You shouldn't push. You shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't stir it up too much. Well, there's a half-truth in that. You don't, you don't want your actions to be 
motivated by anger, your intentions to come from unskillful states. Because when they're coming from unskillful states, you're not seeing what's present clearly, and so your actions are going to be A, not effective, and B, a source of suffering to yourself and others. But there's, there's more to the story than just you don't want to act out of anger or unskillful states. Well, that's all true. But the other, the other truth is, unless you're a being who is living in that state of high equanimity that I, I described, meaning that your mind doesn't stick no matter what it experiences, you know, things, you're fully connected, things just pass through the mind without having much backsplash or ripple, you are going to have reactivity in your mind when you act. Because you have reactivity in your mind when you don't act. You just have reactivity in your mind. So, from my experience, at least, from my own adventures in this, um, in this particular area, the question is, are you aware of your reactivity and do you know how to work with it? Do you know how to work with it in the interest of mitigating your own suffering and your own unskillful actions in how you proceed and in being more, more effective to bring about the change that you seek? So generally speaking, you would be more, one would be, I like that word, one, makes it less personal. One would be more in the category of there are echoes in the mind, echoes of reactivity in relationship to certain experiences or perceptions. There is reactivity in the mind. The mind does have favorites. It does have suffering states. But it has cultivated or is cultivating enough equanimity that it can recognize its reactivity when it's present and knows how to work with it and is wise enough to realize you don't want to act from that reactivity because it's not skillful. It's not effective. But anybody who does the hard work of coming into contact with suffering, sometimes certain forms of suffering that has, uh, requires you to, to move into a state of resistance to or uh, uh, policy holders or stakeholders who are supportive of the existence of certain structures or views, it's a hot fire. It's a hot fire. And it's a whole other lesson in figuring out what your span of control is and how to work with it. So to the extent you can combine these kinds of internal skills, these kinds of soft skills of knowing how to work with your mind, knowing how to work with the reactivity that's present in the minds of other people, you're going to be be a much more effective agent of the change that you seek. Because there will be just less wasteful 
splash and unnecessary suffering in it. Which isn't to say there won't be suffering, because there will be. So, that's the big picture. So, if you, if you, if you want to know the state of equanimity, then it involves learning how to work with your mind. So this is very doable for human beings. This is within the range, the realm of your human potential. Human beings can learn how to do this. Human beings do learn how to do this. Doable, possible, available, but it doesn't just give itself up. You gotta, you gotta go get it. So let's just sit here for a minute. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.